Psalms is another word for songs and poems. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth, the heights of the hills are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. For he is our God, and we're the people of his pastures and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me and they tried me, and though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, it's a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall enter my rest. Let me just do verse 6 again. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. Let me turn your attention now. This is an Old Testament passage. There's two parts of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. So we'll go to a New Testament passage. And uh, Philippians chapter 4, I'll just give you a moment to get there. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. Let me read these verses to you. This is Paul writing to a whole group of people who live at this this um, town or city called Philippi. And there was a Christian church there that had been planted by Paul. And so he writes this letter to them and he says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. And with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses what? All understanding. Boy, don't we know that verse? Um, Will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I have a question this morning for us. Uh, And the question is simply this, how in the world can you have peace that surpasses even our understanding? How can you have peace that surpasses? Because you know our understanding can get locked up in some pretty anxious thoughts sometimes. We can get some fairly fearful thoughts, some fairly worrying and concerning thoughts. Our understanding can be consumed by the, by the sometimes just the day-to-day things that unfold for us all in different ways, whether it's at your workplace or your university or your school or your home. Um, our mind can be consumed some things with a lot of stuff. And the question today I would just want to ask you, and this is not really where I'm going with the message, but I want to ask it as an introduction to what I want to really share, is how... In the world, can you have a peace that surpasses all of that stuff? All of that stuff. Because ultimately, don't we all seek that kind of peace? That kind of, would it, isn't it great to be able to go to bed at night and not be worried about something? Not to keep you up at night. Isn't it great to wake up in the morning and not have the thought that, oh, that problem again. Isn't it great to live in peace? Well, the answer, the short answer is yes. But how do we have that in the midst of it? Talking about struggles, see if you can identify just a little bit with this gentleman's struggle. 1871 is around 150 years ago. None of us actually were around. Some of us are close to that, but not certainly 150 years. 1871 is when, if you know your history, American history, there was an incredible fire that went through the city of Chicago. Some of you have been there. And uh, as it spread through the city, because all the buildings were just built side by side, it took days to extinguish. When the Chicago fire was finished, they counted the cost. 300 lives had been lost. 100,000 people had been left homeless. There was a gentleman who lived in Chicago City. Some of you will know his name. It's the kind of name you wouldn't give to your child these days, but it's okay because, you know, 
Uh, it was a name that was acceptable in those days. His name is Horatio Spafford. Interesting name. Horatio Spafford. Oh, by the way, if you would ever think about peace, some of our lives sometimes feel like that. <laughs> but you know there's a lighthouse in our lives. And I don't know what that gentleman, whether he survived or not, but you know, you'd have to say he's pretty... Um, it, it, maybe he's an illustration of incredible peace in the midst of turmoil. And Horatio Spafford was one man uh, in the Chicago fires that lost a lot. He was a Christian businessman. He loved the Lord. He was a lawyer as well. And in the midst of the Chicago fires, he, he had, of course, owned a lot of real estate, a lot of buildings in Chicago. He lost the majority of his business in, within a week. But instead of Horatio Spafford getting, so, you know, getting wrapped up in that and consumed with what he'd lost, he decided to go about seeing what he could do. And so he, for the next two years, he set his heart to help all the homeless people that had been left homeless by the fire, all the underprivileged, all the people who were grieving. And for two years, he worked tirelessly in Chicago to set them back up and to help people establish themselves. He used what money he had to give and help and support people. What a wonderful attitude this man had. And no doubt was birthed out of his Christian faith and belief and those principles of love thy neighbor. After two years had finished, he was pretty tired, and, and he said to his wife and five children, um, let's go for a holiday, let's go, and he had a good friend called Dwight Moody, who was an evangelist, American evangelist, who was going to Europe to have, an, have a crusade and meetings over there, but before they left, um, um, unfortunately, his youngest son, he only had one son, four daughters, one son, died of a terrible sickness. That put another element of grief and heaviness upon his heart. So he left with his four daughters and his wife on a ship. They went to Europe, enjoyed the, the crusade, enjoyed that. And, and some of you know this story, but for the sake of those who don't, you please hang in there. Um, then, then he had a holiday, and then he said, let's uh, go home. And he had some business he had to attend to. And so he, he put his wife and four girls on a, a ship called Ville de Havre. It's a French name. It, and he sent them on their way across the Atlantic back to America while he attended to some business. While the, that ship was crossing the Atlantic, it, it collided with an English trading ship and sank within 20 minutes. What happened was his wife was one of only 47 people who survived out of hundreds of people on that ship that day. She clung to some debris in the water and, a, and horrifically, she had to write a telegram back to her husband, Horatio, and it said these two words, saved alone. Horatio's four daughters had drowned that day on the way back to America. He then jumped on another ship within 24 hours to be with his wife. And the amount of grief was almost over, overcome and consuming in his heart and life. You can appreciate he, he's lost business. In the last two years, he's lost a majority of his business. He's lost his son. Now he's lost his four daughters. All his children have passed away. He has his wife left. And so he jumps on a ship and he's coming back across the Atlantic and around about the area where Newfoundland is. And as he comes back across the Atlantic, he's on the deck of this ship and he's looking out over the waves as they're you know, rolling through. And the captain comes out onto the, onto the deck and the captain says this, word for word, quote, a careful reckoning has been made, he said, and I believe we are now passing the place where the de Vilderhav sank. What was he talking about? 
He's saying, Horatio, this is where basically your daughters went down and lost their lives. So as he's standing, and the captain then said, I'll just leave you with your thoughts. And as Horatio is standing on the deck of, of the ship, and he's looking over there, the amount of grief that tried to overwhelm him was horrendous. And, and he'd done something that probably wasn't so normal. In actual fact, it probably wasn't even sensible at that moment. But he started to lift his voice and he started to worship God. He had nothing left. He had no one but in that moment but God. And so he started to lift his voice in worship. And you know the story, some of you. As he started to worship, a song came into his heart and he started to pen the words of this hymn that you, for all of us over 45, you would have sang it sometime, and maybe even those who are younger. But it's when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, come on, it is well, it is well with my soul. Here's a man who discovered incredible peace in the midst of incredible turmoil. How does that happen in life? I want to just talk about that this morning because, you know, the truth is, is that we've all possibly prayed a prayer um, for peace. And, and maybe if it hasn't been for yourself sometimes, maybe you've prayed for other people and said, God, just give them peace. Um, give them some strength in the midst of what they face at the moment. I think we've all, a lot of us have probably thought that, if not prayed that prayer for someone. And we've possibly um, seen their need. But the truth is, I want to say to you this morning, peace does not come just because you pray. But you know how peace comes. Peace comes when we don't just pray for peace, but when we worship the Prince of Peace. I want to talk to you this morning. I want to talk to you about worship this morning. Because the reality is, is that um, even in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, and make a request known to God, pray, and then it says thanksgiving, giving thanksgiving unto God. You know the word thanksgiving quite literally means grateful language as spoken as an act of worship. And so while we may be praying, this, the truth is that worship can break out in those times of prayer. And when we just adore, we just honor, we just look up and sometimes without even words, we just express our heart, heart's passion and say, thank you, God, or just worship him. Maybe this morning you did that, but you don't need a church service and 150 people to do that to worship God. Isn't that good? You don't need great singers in a band to do that. In actual fact, Worship can be every day of your lives. Every day. It's the primary. And, the, and, the, and Psalm 95, which we read this morning, is, a, speaks, is primarily speaking about worship. Worship unto God. So have you ever wondered how peace that surpasses our concerns and anxieties and fears can come into our heart when we face it. I want to tell you this morning is it all depends on what you worship. It all depends on what you worship because we can worship many things, can't we? We can worship sport in this great nation of Australia. We can worship other people sometimes. What is worship? That's a good question. What's a good definition of worship? Let me give you one as best I can this morning. My definition of worship it says, it's this, an act of ascribing ultimate value to something that engages your entire being. There we go. 
an act of ascribing ultimate value to something that engages your entire being. Can you think about that? An act of ascribing value to something that, that encompasses your entire being. Let me kind of break that down this morning. Great value. Have you ever gone into a shop and seen this little sign like this on something and it says, great value? This is great value. Um, ricotta cheese isn't high on my list of things I value. Um, but apparently it's not bad put in salads and all that type of stuff. Maybe you've seen some advertising online when you've been trying to book, book accommodation and you go on to, uh, for, uh, what, what are those websites? You know, book.com or, or those other ones that advertise on telly. And you see, and it often says, I noticed it says at the bottom, this room is the best value compared to other rooms like it. The best value. And we start to say, well, what's the best value for things? And you know when I walk through a shop, some are, if you're like me, I'm a terrible shopper. I walk into a shop, I just buy what I want. Michelle says, was that the cheapest? When I get home, she said to me yesterday afternoon, was that the cheapest? I bought a kilo of tomatoes. I said, honey, I don't know. It just looked good. I must admit, I don't go for value. I just think, just get, get in. It's a mission. It's... Get in, buy it, get out. Every man understands what I'm talking about. Every woman, it's a mission. Anyway, we won't go there. But, you know, we're looking for value. Generally in life, we look for value. And, you know, and, and there are some, some things I'll look for value. But, you know, in, in relation um, to what we value, uh, you know, what do you value in that what you worship. See, when you put great value or ultimate value on something, you'll start to really see and want that. You'll start to put it in the first place in your life. And that's what I believe this definition is saying. See, the ultimate value, the ultimate value we need to assign to God, not to things, not to people, not to circumstances. We need to assign. And when you assign ultimate value to our Heavenly Father and start to see who He is and what He's done and incredible, um, that's when worship can break forth, when we give Him ultimate value. Um, you know, in these verses of, of, of Psalm 95, in verses 1 to 3, it, it makes this statement on a couple of occasions in this, um, this chapter of 95 Psalms. It says, O come. So in verse 1, it says, O come, O come. It's, it makes an invitation to you and me this morning in this psalm. And it says, and it talks about singing and shouting and making noise. And um, when you think about it, that's the language of emotion, isn't it? When our emotions grow, build up, we want to sing and shout. You know, as I sat there in my lounge room this week, and I saw those ladies bring that last lawn bowl down, and, and where they were behind by one point, they then scored three bowls and came ahead by one point. I went, yes! The emotion bubbled up, and I had to give some praise to them, some element of, well, those ladies and Australian team are fantastic. It was like the Australian basketball team last night. They, they, sorry, New Zealanders, but they, we, we, um, we beat you. And it was only in the last five minutes. And I went, whoa, talk about Aussies coming from the dead out of nowhere and winning the game. I was excited. It was the same on the, on the, on the, um, on the um, cycling. There was some emotion bubbled up, and I had to sing the praises of those people on the court, on the field, whatever it was. And, you know, 
the psalmist is talking in Psalm 1 to 3. The language is the language of emotion and heart, isn't it? It's the language of our heart. And that's what the psalmist is talking about, the heart to worship. And it bubbles up in an outward expression of song or shouting or whatever it may be. That can be one element of worship. See, someone, some, one, someone once said this, when I worship, I would rather my heart be without words than my words be without heart. I love that. When I worship, I'd rather my heart be without words than my words be without heart. So important. But let's, uh, let's look at another element where the psalmist says, come, makes an invitation. Verse 6 and 7, he, said, he makes an invitation in a different way. And this time, it's not the emotional language he uses, but he uses language like come, kneel, bow down. Um, you know, you're the sheep of my pastor. I'm your shepherd. He uses language uh, of submission because when we bow down, there's always, there's always a submission. You know, I noticed when the um, Prince um, Charles walked into the stadium and people greeted him, there would be a little, you know, a little, in the, in the Commonwealth Games, opening Commonwealth Games, there'd be a little bow or there'd be a little, what's that? That's just an acknowledgement of him as a, you know, a, 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 you know, representing the Queen. And, uh, and in a sense, it's an element of submission. The history of the bowing is always submission. And so we see the psalmist says, I'm going to kneel before you, God. I'm going to bow down before you. That's a language of submission. That's a language of our will. It's a language of our head saying, you know what? I need to just submit myself unto my heavenly Father. So what we see is we see two elements of worship. We see the heart emotion and we see the head submission. And there's a good example of what it's the entire being that that encompasses and needs to be a part of worship unto God. Okay? Worship isn't really worship unless it engages our whole being. It's an act of ascribing your greatest value to the greatest person, our God. That's what it is. And, um, you know, we can go through the ritual of worship sometimes. You can sing, uh, sing the songs and... Um, and, uh, and there's no real emotion, there's no real heart connection, but we can just sing the song. I was just, in actual fact, I paused for a moment this morning myself, and I found myself thinking, have I really looked at the words of some of these songs? And I was just enthralled in some of the statements that were being made that we were singing this morning. And I just took a little moment there just to think about it. But you know, sometimes we can sing the songs, but there's no heart emotion, there's no, no connection, and it doesn't need to be with the song. You know what? It's, a song is not a bad... It's not a song that leads you to worship. Would you get over the song things? It's not about a song. It's a heart to worship God. The song is just the medium or just the flow-through pipe to God. Do you know what I mean? It's always got to be the heart. So we can see that we can have the ritual of worship. We can sing the songs, but there's no emotional connection of worship. If we flip that over, you can have a worship with great emotion. You can have... Um, sing the songs, you can even weep. Sometimes I find myself in tears in worship in this church. Why? Because my wife wants to beat me up? No. It's because I just connect with God for a moment and God touches my heart. And so I have great emotion, great emotion, great passion. But then I find that if that doesn't also come over into my will and fundamentally change the way that I'm going to do Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, then maybe it wasn't really worship that was worth anything anyway. Come on. 
You see, if, if you worship with great emotion today, but then tomorrow you're still angry at your boss and you're still, you, know, um, you still argue with your spouse and you kick your cat and you tell the person who cut you off in traffic, you give them you know, the finger and all the rest, has there really been a fundamental change within your life? Did the worship, was the worship really worship? Because it's not only a heart emotion, but it's also a head acknowledgement that I need to submit my life to him so that I actually start to live a holy life before him. And if that's what worship does, then that's great worship. Paul said to this group of guys in Rome, he said in Romans 12.1, he said this, you know, I want to urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, his great mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifice. In other words, deal with the, 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 the fundamental way that you're living or the patterns of lifestyle that are destructive to you. Deal with those things because they're not good for you. Come on, offer your bodies as living sight. Kill the old person attitudes and all that. Be holy and pleasing to God. And then he says, you know what? When you do that type of stuff, you know what that is? This is your true and proper worship. When you actually not only have an emotional experience, but also that it, it transpires into a determined experience of, hey, you know what? I, my will, I'm going to submit my will unto God. When it does that, that's true worship. That's what I mean when we said we ascribe greatest ultimate value to the one with our whole being. Our whole being is involved. And this is what this psalm talks about. Um, so we've got to engage our emotions, engage our will, our determination, our submission, whole heart offering of worship. We alter and adjust our old life patterns to the ones to be obedient to him, Paul says. Do you know what that is? He says that's true worship. That's true and proper worship. There was a, um, there's a great incident and story that happened in the New Testament. Um, right at the start of the Gospels in Luke chapter 5, Jesus had just kind of started his ministry he was 30 years of age. He had three years on the face of the earth before he passed away. Uh, was killed and murdered on a cross. And we see, we see uh, Jesus has got a multitude of people who want to speak to him. And, and the multitude of people are coming down the hill, and he's up against the Galilee Sea. The Galilee Sea is behind him. There happened to be a couple of fishermen with their boats here. Peter was one of them, and he's cleaning his nets from the night before. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter... Can I jump in your boat, push me out a little way, and then I'll be able to kind of speak to this multitude of people. Peter says, sure, jump in. They go out a little way, maybe about five or six meters from the shore, and Jesus speaks to the multitude. Has a great time. Multitude, listen. But Jesus is in the boat. He's finished speaking. And then he says to Peter, hey, Peter, um, he doesn't really know Peter. Peter doesn't really know him. Remember before Peter became a disciple of Christ? And so what we see is that Jesus says to Peter, he says, Peter, but why don't you launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch of fish? And you remember Peter's response. Peter says, oh, master, translated rabbi, uh, teacher. I just spent the night fishing. Didn't catch a thing except the cold. And so, you know, I really don't want to do it again. I'm paraphrasing it. But, Peter said, because, you has, you're, because you've asked me to, I will do it. Peter goes out into the deep. He throws down his net. Um, he catches not just a couple of guppies. He catches a net full of fish that it's so big he can't pull it in. I mean, what's the difference between last night and this morning? What has happened that's different? He couldn't catch a thing last night. Now he's catching an incredible load of fish that he can't even contain. 
And so Peter has this epiphany or this revelation moment about this man in his boat called Jesus. He realizes this is no normal rabbi. This is no normal teacher. He sees that he connects the two that the miraculous catch of fish has got everything to do with this man. Um, He has this moment of just, wow. Do you know in the Psalm 95, it actually, the psalmist talks about that. The psalmist starts to realize the greatness of God. And he writes it down in verse 3. He says, he is great. He is the king. In verse 4, he says, his hands have formed the earth. That's a pretty big revelation. In verse 5, he says, he's made the sea. In verse 7, he says, for he is our God and, and the shepherd of us and we're the sheep. He has this, the psalmist has this revelation. The psalmist has this amazing epiphany of, wow, how great is our God? This is amazing. How enormous, how great, how big. I just magnify him. And Peter has one of those moments. And Peter responds in two ways. The first thing that Peter does in that boat when he realizes that Jesus is more than just a man, but he's a miracle worker, this is miraculous. The first thing he does, he bows himself down at Jesus' feet. Can you see that? That constitutes straight away in that culture, and even in our culture today, this whole submission thing. So Peter submits himself before Jesus. And then he says, and then because of the submission, and, the, and in actual fact, Peter mightn't have known it. Peter, Peter mightn't have put it in his terms, but that's worship. That's worship. And as Peter, then because of his worship, the second thing transpires. And Peter says, something's got to give here. He doesn't say those words, but he realizes in heart. Either, um, you know, I need to give up my unholy lifestyle and the way I live my life here and give up my sin and my hard drinking or whatever else he'd done as a hardened Galilean fisherman. I need to give that up. That's one option um, as he worships Jesus. Or secondly, Jesus just needs to leave my presence because I cannot continue to live in my present lifestyle with his, him in my presence So Peter goes for the second one and says to Jesus, Jesus, would you just leave me because I am a sinful man? Do you remember that statement? Would you just leave me because I'm a sin? Peter comes to this understanding that as he bows in submission to Jesus, that one or two, one of of the other thing has to happen. I get out of his presence or he gets out of mine. Thankfully, we find what happens is that Peter uh, says to Jesus, Leave me, Jesus doesn't leave. Jesus hangs around, and Peter goes on to leave his fishing boat, to leave his business, and actually goes on to become a disciple of Jesus Christ and realize and changes some patterns and some fundamental life patterns that he had that were not good. And it's amazing over the next three years how much Peter did change. And I would uh, suggest to you today that he, Jesus, uh, Peter spent three years of literally elements of just always worshipping Jesus, worshipping God. And as he did, it got to the crescendo that when finally Jesus Christ was murdered on the cross, was buried, rose again, went to be with his father, that Peter, and only then did he stand up and show the results of three years of continual love and worship for his saviour, Jesus Christ. Because in this wonderful book of the second chapter of Acts, we see that 
Peter is the one. When the multitude of people came around in Jerusalem that day and the, the Holy Spirit was poured out, we see that Peter was the one. This hardened Galilean fisherman um, now become the most gracious man with great poise and great wisdom, spoke an incredible message. And you know the result. 3,000 people responded to the things of God that day. What an amazing thing. The man who once was such... You know, it's such a, a man of, of, uh, who, who couldn't stand in Jesus' presence. It all started there that day in the boat when he couldn't be in Jesus' presence as he worshipped him because of the sin in his life. Now he's a man that's gone on to become one of the great disciples and apostles for Jesus Christ. What, how does that happen, folks, in life? It happens because we get an understanding and we give the ultimate value to our God that encompasses our entire being, and it's called worship. Worship. We, um, we have a little joke in our house because I've discovered that we've got two dogs. One's named Zoe and one's named Rosie. Some of you have met them, and they're just little dogs. And Rosie is a little grey Sisichu cross Maltese, and she has straight hair and grey hair. And my family say, that's you, Dad. And uh, then we have, you guessed it, we have another little dog who's a poodle cross uh, Sisichu. And she has black hair and curly hair. And they say, that's you, Mum. And, uh, and it's quite true. My hair, I've got more gray hair than um, brown hair at the moment. Some of you got some beautiful, I just, I just want my whole hair to go totally gray because I think silver's really good in these days, you know. But um, so I, I'm kind of like my dog. They say, you look like Zoe and, Mich and Michelle looks like Rosie. And uh, it's true that sometimes we look like our dogs, don't we? I don't think for a moment that we turn, we sometimes have this incredible change of physique where we actually start to look like our dogs or our dogs change physique. That doesn't happen. Of course it doesn't happen. But it's, it's interesting that our owners sometimes can look like their dogs. Have you ever seen that? Um, here's some examples, as you can see. So it's a little bit of a joke with our children about Michelle and I and what we really look like. Uh, the thing is... Um, you can see the resemblance sometimes in these type of things. But the point is, it's a, it, it, while it may be a physical resemblance in this, most, um, this issue of dogs and owners and things like that, when it comes to God in our, in our worship of him, you actually start to, to resemble what you worship in life. And, and, and it's not a physical change that undertakes in your life, but what you start to worship in life actually starts to invade your, your attitudes and your heart and your motives and your lifestyle and the patterns that you live in, in, in how you live your life. It, and, you know, when we worship our Heavenly Father, you start to take on His resemblance. Not a physical thing, but a heartfelt thing. A heartfelt um, desire uh, to live the way He wants us to live, to have the attitudes He wants us to have. The Bible actually calls it the fruit of the Spirit. Who, who doesn't want love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, meekness, self-control, all those wonderful qualities. But you can start to take on the very qualities of a heavenly father. And it all depends what you worship in life. You start to resemble what you worship. Have you ever noticed people who maybe place money first in their lives? They don't start to look like a dollar bill. I'm not, not that there's a dollar bill isn't around these days. You don't look, look like it. But in your heart, 
and your motivations and your attitudes, you start to be so d- directed down that path. That's what you start to want. And everything is about that. In actual fact, you don't just place it first. You start to worship that. And that's a sad day, I think, when we do that. Or maybe, maybe, maybe we take other people and put them on a pedestal and start to worship them. And so when they say do something, you go out of your way to try and make sure they're happy, no matter even if it's a good or bad thing they want you to do. I think that's a time where you've got to kind of contemplate, am I worshipping somebody else? So then there's numerous examples. Sometimes we can worship items, material things. Sometimes we can just put other things first. It's whatever you put first in life. Whatever, you know, I often find what I worship, if I'm going about in life, and all of a sudden, I have to divert the direction I'm going simply because I'm, that I've got to do this. Maybe you've got to consider that I've got to do this thing is, thing, is the, really the thing that you've put first in your life. If it can't hold off, if it can't wait just for a moment, maybe that's the thing that's consuming your heart. So we've got to weigh it up. See, you see, the worshiper changes, sorry, worship changes the worshiper into the image of the one worshipped. Can I say it again? Worship changes the worshiper into the image of the one worshipped. And I would challenge us and encourage us today. The ultimate value that you place on God will determine your level of worship. There was a story of a wonderful, uh, and we'll finish with this this morning. There's a story of, about a jewel. A, a family had inherited a set of jewels. Um, jewelry, I should say. It had been passed on from generation to generation to generation. And as they'd passed it on, it had great um, sentimental value, but no one had ever priced it. And so the lady who now presently had it, she went to a jeweler's, a well-known jeweler's, and she had it priced. So the jeweler took the jewelry. Um, he took his little microscope um, put it in his eyepiece, eyepiece, looking at the jewelry, and he started to examine the jewelry piece. And as he started to examine the jewelry piece, he noticed how the light refracted off the, the pieces. He noticed how the jeweled pieces had been cut. He started to notice um, that the texture and the, the colors were brilliant and the brightness of it. And, he's, and he realized that the craftsmanship of how they formed this jewelry was, had been long lost. And that this was a piece of jewelry possibly centuries old. And he came to this revelation that this piece of jewelry was worth hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. He was amazed. It had just been a normal day. He was just going to go into his jewel shop and jewelry shop and do what he normally does. But the moment that he realized what he had in his possession, it changed him forever in the sense that he'd never had a piece of jewelry this much in his possession cost this much money in actual fact everything he owned in the way of jewelry in his shop didn't amount to the total of this one piece of jewelry it affected him so much and when the lady came to a a revelation and realization that this jewelry was incredibly expensive it actually affected she could no longer live the way she used to live because quite frankly it just this piece of jewelry sat in the cupboard drawer They'd bring it out, throw it around. It had been left on the cupboard for many days, sometimes just dropped on the floor. Now when she went home, because she realized the value of the jewelry, she bought a safe and put it in the safe. 
She put extra locks on her front and back door. She put a security cameras around her house because she's literally got a priceless piece of jewelry in her house. She couldn't live the way she used to live. This changed her forever. Life was different now. She didn't tell everybody what she owned anymore and she didn't let everybody handle it because it was pretty priceless. And that's what the psalmist and Psalm 95 church this morning asks us to do. Consider the value of God. Consider His greatness. Consider that when we truly worship, it engages our emotions and our mind and we lift our voice, but it also engages our will where we say, worship is going to influence me to the point where I go tomorrow and something's going to be different again tomorrow, not just today. It's like the jeweler who just, nothing was the same. It was like the lady who now owned this piece of jewelry. Nothing was the same ever again. Life had changed. And when we come to our Heavenly Father and truly worship Him, life has to change. Otherwise, it's really not true worship. It's really not true worship. See, we need to, the interesting thing about what this psalmist is saying, he says, look at the greatness of God. He created the heavens. He created the earth. He's like a king. He's great. He's mighty. He's a shepherd to me. We can have relationship. I'm a sheep to him. The psalmist is saying, oh, come, let us bow down. Let us submit our lives. Oh, come, let us worship. Let's sing to him. Let's engage your emotions. Let's engage our will. Uh, let's give him all. And as we do that, things happen in our lives. And you know what ultimately happens? It brings incredible peace that surpasses understanding. It connects us. It brings life for us. Do you know the word worship this is, an, is an English word? And there's another old, 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 old English word that's, that actually re refers to it. And the old English word that's translated from the word worship is actually worth-ship. Worth, W-O-R-T-H, ship, worth-ship. And when we come to our Heavenly Father, we actually come and we need to realize the worth of our God. He is your life, hope, and future. And if you realize, truly realize that, I tell you, we would worship Him. We would worship Him wholly. We would worship Him entirely. We would give Him all that we do. And in exchange... Things change in our life. So this morning, church, can we have peace that surpasses understanding? We certainly can. Our God wants to give it. And it's through not just prayer, but worship of our God. Can we stand this morning as we close? That'd be brilliant. Worship is always at heart before it's a song. It's in our heart before it's a song. Worship is always a desire before it ever comes out any way else. Worship is kneeling at the feet of Jesus and realizing, I oh mean, uh, I've done some wrong things. Would you just, either you leave my life, Jesus, or I need to change. Worship is all of those things. Worship is looking at the value of God and ascribing ultimate value to Him and saying, you're all that I need. So my prayer would be that would be your heart today, church, and that we'd come and understand and realize that. I wonder if you would just close your eyes just for a moment because I think it's important that we would come to the first step 
on their walk with God and say, have I ever responded to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have I ever come to that moment where, you know, I kind of believe in Him, but, you know, have I ever made a commitment to Him to actually become a Christian? And maybe you're here today and you've never had that, never done that, and maybe because you've never had that opportunity. I would just love to lead you in, I'd love to, well, actually just pray for you this morning where you are today, and if you know that that's a step that you need to take, say yes to Jesus Christ, actually become a believer. Maybe it's for you today, it's not so much the first time, but maybe you need to come back to Him and say, yes, God, I believe in you, I just need to say yes to you again, and and I ask for your help to live my life for you. I ask for your help to to walk with you and, and, and to value you more than I do. So if that's you this morning, while we're just here for a moment, could you just lift your hand, indicate it to me. I'll see the hand. You can put it down again. Anybody here this morning, just say yes to Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, we're good. I'll only wait a moment longer. Okay. Well, Father, I thank you for every person today. I thank you that you're... you're Father, you love us so much that you sent Jesus. Wow. Incredible commitment to me and commitment to all of us. Jesus ultimately showed us how to live, but he ultimately took the punishment for us. I thank you for that this morning. He took, in a sense, I can hand over my sin and be forgiven because of Jesus Christ took that punishment. And so today we may be people that would be aware of who we would worship, what we would worship, what we would ascribe ultimate value to, Lord. And that when we do ascribe it to God, that we allow our entire being to be involved. Not just my emotion and get emotional about it, but it also be my will and how I live my life Monday through to Saturday again. And not just the Sunday thing. Father, we thank you. For those today, maybe people who are facing some incredible times of unpeace, unrest right now, not quite sure of the future in this meeting, I ask that they would find incredible strength and as as they worship you, your peace would be their portion in life. Father, I ask that in the name of Jesus. And I commit ourselves to you and thank you today. And all who agreed said, Amen. Come on. Just